F.F. Bruce was a uh, distinguished New Testament scholar from Britain. Uh, His works are known for both careful scholarship and their devotional quality. It's a rare combination. Uh, He once wrote a book called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. The Hard Sayings of Jesus. He said some are hard because they're difficult to understand, but others are hard because the demands they make on us are only too clear. He said it's all too easy to believe in a Jesus who is largely a construction of our own imagination, an inoffensive person whom no one would really trouble to crucify. But the Jesus we meet in the Gospels, far from being an inoffensive person, gave offense right and left. Even his loyal followers found him at times thoroughly disconcerting. He upset all established notions of religious propriety. He spoke of God in terms of intimacy, which sounded like blasphemy. He seemed to enjoy the most questionable company. He set out with open eyes on a road which, in the view of sensible people, was bound to lead to disaster. But, in those who were not put off by Jesus, he created a passionate love and allegiance which death could not destroy. Today we find ourselves confronted by another hard saying of Jesus. Uh, There are some religious leaders resisting Jesus' authority, and so Jesus confronts them with a parable, and it is a parable that packs a punch. And the gist of it goes something like this. Crushing consequences await anyone who rejects Jesus. Crushing consequences await anyone who rejects Jesus. But if you're not put off by Jesus, if instead His Word leads you to repentance and faith, then you will find yourself belonging to a glorious king and to a glorious kingdom. Let's look at these things together, starting in verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it. And he built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. 
When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, well, he, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So Jesus begins with, hear another parable. The first parable we covered last Sunday, and it too packed a punch, right? It was the parable of the two sons. The, these religious leaders had boasted a great obedience to God, but when John the Baptist came preaching God's kingdom, they refused to respond. And then when the tax collectors and the, and the prostitutes uh, were transformed by God's kingdom, they saw it all, they still refused to respond. And so Jesus says, you're like a son that tells his father, I go, sir, but never does. Their hypocrisy proves they don't belong to God's kingdom. Only those who repent, who change their mind about Jesus become heirs of the kingdom. And now Jesus tells another parable that packs a punch. And he's got these same religious leaders in the ring, and he's about to deal them another right hook. So our passage unfolds here in three parts. We'll look first at the parable itself in verses 33 to 41. And, and then we're going to look at how Jesus uses Psalm 118 to explain and apply the parable. That's verses 42 to 44. And then lastly, we're going to see how this message affects the religious leaders and how it ought to affect us. So to start, let's look at the parable Jesus tells in verses 33 to 41. It begins like some of Jesus' other parables. We've got a master of a house here. He's over a vineyard. And most readers, most of his, I mean, most of his listeners could have related to a story like this, having either owned the vineyard themselves or, or worked in one. But more importantly, a vineyard was a, a familiar metaphor applied to Israel in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7 is a great example of this. It's very much like what Jesus says here. But Isaiah 5 starts off with, God had a vineyard. On, on a very fertile hill, and, and he dug it, and he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines, and he built a watchtower in, in the midst of it, and he, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. And then Isaiah 5, verse 7, tells us what the vineyard's supposed to represent. It says, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so when Jesus brings up 
a vineyard, Jewish ears would have been tuning in. Is this guy talking about us? And indeed he is. And there's a few things Jesus means to to emphasize. One is the generosity of the master. Did, Did you notice all that the master does for the vineyard? He plants the vineyard. He puts a fence around the vineyard to, to keep out the, the animals from, from digging it up. Right? He, he, he uh, digs a wine press in it as well so they don't have to haul their grapes somewhere else. He builds a, a watchtower from which they can see thieves sneaking in or a fire breaking out. So the master does everything to bless his vineyard and to, and to make it prosper. Uh, if, to use the words of Isaiah 5, verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard, says the Lord. Same with the master here. He, he illustrates God's generosity to his people. He gave them everything. And the point or the goal of the master's generosity was for his vineyard to bear fruit. Throughout our passage, we find this concern for fruit. So in verse 34, the master means to to gather his, his, his fruit, right? When the season for fruit drew near, and then we'll see it again in verse 41. Even the religious leaders know the purpose for a vineyard is to bear fruit. And then, and then fruit comes up again in verse 43 when Jesus explains the meaning of the parable. And we find the same concern when it's used this way in the Old Testament, especially Isaiah 5, verse 2. It said God looked for His vineyard, that is, His people, to bear fruit, to bear grapes. Now, this too should cause the ears of these religious leaders to perk up. Because these same Religious leaders knew what John the Baptist had been preaching. That was, Jesus brought this up already in verse 25 and verse 32. They knew what John the Baptist was preaching. And if you go back in Matthew's gospel to see what John the Baptist was preaching in chapter 3, verse 8, what does he tell them? Bear fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. Bear fruit. And this was also the concern of Jesus, wasn't it? On, on his way in uh, to, to meet with the religious leaders, he, he cursed a fig tree for bearing no fruit. And the point was to expose Israel and its leaders as a people producing no fruit. So fruit is a big concern here. The master's generosity was for his vineyard to bear fruit. But when the season for fruit had come, what happens in verses 34 to 37? Well, he sends his servants to gather the fruit, but instead of giving the master his fruit, they beat and kill and stone his servants. Uh, we, we see the, the master's generosity shines again because he doesn't immediately punish them, right? He sends more servants. He sends other servants. It says, more than the first Verse 36, 
And then his generosity shines yet again. After the tenants kill those off, it says, finally, verse 37, the master sends his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let, let's kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, at this point in the parable, it's not hard to see where Jesus is going. Right? He's rehearsing the story of Israel. He's rehearsing the story of Israel's re- rejection of God. God had given Israel a kingdom to, re- to steward everything they needed to bear fruit. He provided. Uh, he even sent them servant after servant after servant after servant. We know them as the prophets. And they were God's messengers to help Israel understand their purpose in bearing fruit for God's kingdom. And yet the nation and its leaders largely rejected those prophets and beat them and killed them. But Jesus then takes their story a step further. Israel's rejection will culminate in the killing of the master's son, the rightful heir. So instead of stewarding the Lord's gifts to produce fruit for his kingdom, the tenants attempt to seize everything to build their own kingdom. And they will do it even to the point of killing the owner's son. Now, anyone following Matthew's gospel knows that Jesus has just written himself into the parable. Right? Jesus, Matthew's gospel starts with Jesus' son of David, son of Abraham, and a little bit further, son of God. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus has already predicted his death multiple times too, hasn't he? Where he will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, the people he's talking to. And they will condemn him to death and crucify him. So Jesus is showing how the story of Israel's rejection of God climaxes in them killing God's son. This is Jesus' own destiny in in the telling of Israel's story. He is the final and full expression of God's generosity and patience and mercy. And yet they cut him off. They they put him out. They're going to kill him. Now we can see that better than than these religious leaders. They they haven't yet put together. We can put it together because we're reading Matthew's gospel. He wants us to put it together. But the religious leaders haven't put it together yet. And Jesus then poses a question to them in verse 40. He's kind of like drawing drawing them in. And why why don't you guys finish this parable out for me? He asks, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they say to Jesus, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That is a spot-on answer. They have drawn the right conclusion from the parable. The wicked tenants merit the owner's judgment. The owner is right to strip the vineyard from them and give it to others who will give him the fruits he deserves. So by, by extension, we're seeing here that God will be right to judge Israel and strip 
Israel of his kingdom, the religious leaders haven't yet fully grasped that they are the wicked tenants in Jesus' story. By rejecting God's Son, their sights are set on building their own kingdom. They're not interested in God's kingdom, especially one where Jesus reigns and then includes people like tax collectors and prostitutes, which we heard earlier in chapter 21, verse 32. But here's where Jesus' parable sets them up. Here's where it packs a punch. Anyone who lives like that will be crushed by Jesus' kingdom. And that's understood in part by the owner putting those wretches to a miserable death, verse 41. But Jesus then expands on this by turning to the Scriptures in verses 42 to 44. So, So having finished the parable... Jesus now uses Psalm 118 to explain and apply the parable to these religious leaders directly. Had these religious leaders read their Bibles more carefully, they would have known things were heading this way. He says in verse 42, Have you never read in the Scriptures... The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So that's from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Now, we learned part of this psalm not too long ago in chapter 21, verse 9. If you just glance across your page, chapter 21, verse Uh, Verse 9, the people are praising Jesus when he enters the, the city with words from Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are words toward the end of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. What we haven't learned yet is how those praises follow the king's sufferings, and vindication. All right, so Psalm 118 uh, was written from the perspective of a special king in Israel. And I say special because when you read it, he's the worship, he's the worship leader in Israel. Um, he has also got enough influence in Israel that he represents the nation in battle. That's why he can speak of all the nations surrounding me. Right? Me in the singular. All the nations. This is Psalm 118, verses 10 and 11. Uh, So in that way, he's like the the special king of Psalm chapter 2, where the kings of the earth and the rulers set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed one, His Messiah. Also, in the face of great suffering, He remains faithful to the Lord, and to top it off, He represents God's people in battle such that His victory becomes their victory. So, that psalm, when you read it, ain't first about you. 
and your struggles. It's about the king and his struggles. It's about the special king. But the king's victory doesn't come without great suffering. That's why he opens the psalm with, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. This is in the midst of the nations surrounding him. He says, I pushed hard so that I was falling. He likens his sufferings to a death in verse 18. But it's in verse 22 that we find the words Jesus quotes, the stone that the builders rejected. So God's special king throughout the psalm, mighty as he is, faithful as he is, fearless as he is, he's tossed aside like an insignificant stone. The, the, The builders, the ones leading God's people, the ones who were supposed to be about the Lord's work, right? In Jesus's day, it was like these religious leaders the builders, they, they look at this king at the, as a, like an insignificant stone and they say, eh, there's better ones over here. Let's go to this pile. We, we, we know better how to build God's kingdom and that stone ain't it. Nevertheless, God had a plan for his special king in the psalm. As our text says, this was the Lord's doing. It was part of his sovereign plan that the king getting tossed aside becomes the greatest act God performs to establish his kingdom. The, the little parable that Psalm 118 is, is saying goes on, the stone that the builders rejected, that same stone has become the cornerstone. So the most significant stone in the building Meaning the king that seemed insignificant, the king who was kind of tossed aside, the king who struggled unto death for his people. What's implied here by the parable is that he doesn't stay dead. God makes him the cornerstone, which is why Psalm 118 ends with all this praise. It's why they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's why the people join the king finally in worship at the end of Psalm 118. It's through the king's obedient sufferings and then vindication that God's kingdom prevails and the people get to enter the gates of righteousness and they get to go right up to the altar, right into the presence of God. So the people are filled with joy. There are, it says there are glad songs breaking out in the camp the stone that they that some people were saying was insignificant, they look at it and that this is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, they sing. So going back to Matthew 21, it makes sense why Jesus would use Psalm 118 to explain and apply his parable to these religious leaders. Jesus is the special king of Psalm 118, and he's looking at a bunch of guys who are about to hang him up on a cross, who are about to toss aside Jesus like that insignificant stone. They are the builders who think they know better than God, much like the tenants in Jesus' parable 
who kill the son and want to make, build the, keep the inheritance for themselves. But what they don't realize is that such an act will not stop God's special king. In fact, Psalm 118 has already laid out what's going to happen. They will kill Jesus, but it's all part of God's plan to topple their kingdom and establish a greater one, one that's built on the cornerstone of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, the the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, that is, you unbelieving Israel, and given to a people producing its fruits. Can you imagine how that lands on these religious leaders in Israel? He's looking them square in the face and saying, just because you're Jewish, just because you belong to Israel and have centuries of blessings from God, just because you know the scriptures and view yourself as the religious ones, that doesn't mean you belong to God's kingdom. That doesn't make you part of God's people. If you reject the king, you're not part of God's kingdom. That's a crushing blow. Well, who gets the kingdom then? Well, those who produce the kingdom's fruits. Those who repent and bow to Jesus as king and love his rule. He will give the kingdom to the likes of his disciples. Who have chosen to follow Jesus. He will give the kingdom to the likes of those tax collectors and prostitutes who had responded to the saving message of Jesus with repentance. Later in Matthew's gospel, he will include people from north and south and east and west, people from all nations will will gather. In fact, it's significant here that the word behind a people producing its fruits is also translated sometimes nation. He's talking about the nations who are made disciples of Jesus. He's talking about the church consisting of Jew and Gentile alike who proclaim Jesus as Lord and submit their lives to bearing the fruit of His kingdom. But for those who reject Jesus, there will be crushing consequences. He goes on to say in verse 44, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Perhaps we're now hearing echoes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. The Lord is a sanctuary to his people. But he is also, it says, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall and be crushed. Or maybe we're hearing echoes here of of the stone prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. People run with their own little kingdoms for a little while, and then God raises up a stone, and it shatters. It shatters all the other kingdoms. Either way, Jesus is very clear here. The stone in Psalm 118, it ain't going anywhere. You can accept that and live accordingly, 
or crushing consequences await anyone who rejects Jesus. So where does that leave you? How have you responded to Jesus? We know how the religious leaders respond. Matthew tells us in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Well, that's good. But it doesn't result in repentance, does it? Tragically, Matthew says, and although they were seeking to arrest Jesus, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Luke says right after this, they go off and secretly plot how they're going to kill Jesus. They're in the same state of unbelief that they had when they started the conversation with Jesus. You remember, if you look back at verse 26, Jesus was trying to get them square with John the Baptist and what they thought of him, and, and, they, and they, they won't answer him. And one of the reasons they give in verse 26, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now they're all afraid of the crowd because they hold that Jesus is a prophet. And so you got, despite the evidence, despite the parables, despite knowing that Jesus was talking about them, they remain unchanged. And if that's where they stay, Jesus' kingdom will crush them. And if that's where you stay, Jesus' kingdom will crush you. He will take you out. You will... You will suffer the misery of watching your little kingdom crumble. And for an eternity, that misery will never let up. So what are you going to do with Jesus? Do you hold him to be the rightful heir? Do you acknowledge him as king and savior and Lord? Or have you rejected him? Have you said, eh, he's all right. And kind of tossed him aside. Do you live in ways that push him out? Are you indifferent to him? This parable doesn't allow you to stay there. If you walk away saying, that's what Christians happen to believe about Jesus, then you've missed the claim that Jesus is making. You must come to terms with Jesus. As C.S. Lewis once said, he's either a liar or lunatic or Lord. He is the cornerstone. God is building His kingdom as we speak. But if you see life as just doing your own thing, building your own kingdom, ignoring Jesus' words, then crushing consequences await you. Jesus will shatter your kingdom. So, would you consider again the Master's generosity toward you? 
Would you consider again God's kindness in making His appeals to you even this morning? And also in our story, sending His Son for you? Romans chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So if you're not put off by Jesus' words, if instead that word is leading you to repentance and faith, then you're going to find yourself blessed with a relationship with this King and glory in His kingdom. So don't choose to live for yourself. Trust in Jesus and find, in, find His person and His obedience and His sufferings and His resurrection to be your salvation. Repent and follow the King And you can take that first step by getting baptized. Come talk to one of us about that. For many of us, we have placed our trust in Jesus. His words, man, hard as they are sometimes to read, they have become for us eternal life. We look at that stone now, and he's not insignificant in our eyes. He is marvelous in our eyes. We sing with Psalm 118, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We we see God's great salvation in Jesus. His victory has become our victory, and we are thrilled. Here's what our passage says to those of us who believe that Jesus is God's special king, give to your king the fruit he deserves. Give to your king the fruit he deserves. You are the new tenants in the vineyard. Jesus took away the vineyard from faithless Israel and he gave it to a people producing its fruits. And it started with the disciples, but that has flowered and and grown over the whole world into what we call the church, Jew and Gentile alike who believe in Jesus. Through Jesus, the Lord has given His vineyard to you and He expects fruit. His generosity in the gospel is for the purpose of you bearing fruit. And we get examples of this throughout the New Testament. Just type in the word fruit and look at all the different passages. Matthew 8, Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, bearing fruit means repentance since the kingdom of God is at hand. Ephesians 5, 9, we looked at that a few weeks ago in January where the the fruit of light meant committing ourselves to all that is good and right and true. In John 15, it's loving the the brothers and sisters who are Jesus' disciples. In John 4.36, gathering fruit has to do with winning new converts among the nations. So bearing fruit means devoting yourself to the things that please the Lord, the things that honor the Son, that love His people, and that spread His message to others. Peter, Peter must have been listening to Jesus 
teach here on Psalm 118. He, he understood what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits because Peter viewed the church as the people producing those fruits. He quotes from Psalm 118 in his letter. This is First Peter chapter 2, verse 7. He quotes the same verse that Jesus quotes here. But he explains its significance beforehand in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. And he says this, As you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we are these living stones that are being built up on the cornerstone into this spiritual house. That's who you are. God God is building His house on the cornerstone. That's who you are. I mean, I don't know, maybe others have, maybe others have cut you down this week. Maybe a friend has made you feel worthless. Maybe you're just going through life finding it hard. Maybe things didn't work out like you expected. Maybe work seems really pointless and vain. Listen, you need to remember that you are part of something great and beautiful that spans centuries and becomes a taste of heaven on earth. You are God's house where His Spirit dwells. You are being built right now on the cornerstone. You are God's temple. And what is your purpose to to bring Him fruit? To the way Peter puts it, to offer spiritual sacrifices. And then, what does that mean? Well, it means we give ourselves to everything that pleases the Lord and, and that the Spirit is doing in us, right? In First Peter, it's learning how to trust the Lord when you're tested through trials. It's learning how to be holy in all of your conduct. It's loving one another from a pure heart. It's proclaiming God's excellencies. It's being generally subject to governing authorities. It's wives adorning yourselves with a gentle and quiet spirit. It's husbands living with your wives in an understanding manner. It's a life of prayer and showing hospitality without grumbling. It's all in First Peter. So this is the fruit God desires from our lives. This is the fruit we get to produce while working in God's vineyard. So give yourself to bearing the fruit of Jesus' kingdom. What an amazing privilege it is to, to be caretakers in God's vineyards. We weren't always in there. We were on the outside. We were cut off. But in Christ, He's brought us into His vineyard. We didn't deserve it. And as we serve in the vineyard, hasn't the Lord been gracious? Hasn't He been generous to us? Isn't He just like the Master here, giving us everything we need and way more than we need? We have life and breath We have His world. We we have His love, the Scriptures, the church. And most of all, He sent His only Son 
we ought to be asking the question that Isaiah asked, what more could he do for us? Crushing consequences await anyone who rejects Jesus. But for those who receive Jesus and acknowledge his lordship, there is no better place to be than serving in his vineyard. Because of his great love, give Jesus the fruit he deserves. And then lastly, keep building the church on Jesus, the cornerstone. Keep building the church on Jesus, the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, Psalm 118 says. It was the Lord's doing to build His kingdom on the cornerstone. To build His church on the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. But it is often a temptation facing Christians to start building the church on other things besides Jesus. I mean, from the, pro- from the Pope to prosperity. From seeker-sensitive to self-help. From pop music and coffee to rodeos and arenas. From a popular brand to popular preachers. Every Christian is faced with an onslaught of temptation to replace the cornerstone. And those temptations have been real even recently with, the, with this being an election year. A couple weeks ago, Andrew Walker published an article in World Magazine. He says, in an election year, it is more than easy to collapse and reduce the most important things happening in America to politics. How much more is that amplified with the endless drama of Donald Trump? But for evangelicals, what occurs in the voting booth is much less significant than what's happening in your local church on Sundays or around your dinner table. Though we cannot stop the media from doing what it will do, it's our choice whether to make politics the central fixture of our focus. Brothers and sisters, the moment... We make the central fixture of our focus anything other than Jesus. That is the moment we start building a kingdom that is not God's. So be sure that you are not swayed. I'm not saying don't get involved with politics. Just go listen to my sermon a few weeks ago on Ephesians 5. But there's a way to do it where it doesn't toss aside the cornerstone. So be sure that you're not swayed to start building the church on another foundation if we toss aside the cornerstone that consequences await us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask that you would continue to build this church on the cornerstone of Jesus and that we would protect the gospel message here so that it remains 
central in the preaching and central in the teaching ministries of this church and central to our own lives. And I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to take this gospel message to others that they too with us might become living stones and that they too might be built up on the cornerstone. I ask that you would use our testimony to save many from the crushing consequences that await all who reject Jesus. Bring them in, Lord, Jew and Gentile alike, tax collectors, prostitutes, many who will put their faith in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.